I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. How are you? I'm good, you know. That doesn't sound great. It's not very convincing. No, I just um, I just found out from NBC they're moving our premiere date a week because of golf. Oh, <laughs> uh, golf. And I'm just like sitting here like, I hate golf. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so let's spend the next hour talking about how golf sucks. <laughs> I think I could spend an hour talking about that. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Jamie. And I'm Amy, and this is Clever. Today we're talking to Danny Seo. He's an activist, designer, author of 10 books focused around living an eco-friendly lifestyle, who has also helped people around the world live greener lifestyles and incorporate eco-friendly choices. He's known his dharma, or his calling, since he was 12 years old when he started his first nonprofit to save the planet. And he hasn't looked back. He's recently launched a magazine called Naturally Danny Seo and is just about to launch his new show on NBC, also called Naturally Danny Seo. And he's a funny, sarcastic, and all-around nice guy who truly cares about the earth and the people who live on it. So let's talk to Danny. Uh, my name is Danny Seo. Um, today I'm in Lambertville, New Jersey, which is probably the most idyllic town in America you'll ever visit, about an hour and a half outside of New York City. But really, the city I, I live, work, and, and play out of would be at any airport in the country. <laughs> and what I do for a career, um, I'm an author. I have a new cookbook that just came out. I'm a magazine editor. I have a magazine called Naturally Danny Co. And I'm also the host of a new NBC show of the same name that is premiering one of these days. <laughs> okay, uh, why don't you start by telling us all about your humble beginnings? Where where did you grow up? Where were you born? What was your family like? Do you have siblings? What kind of kid was Danny Co? I told myself I wasn't going to cry. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm from the town of Reading, Pennsylvania. And Reading, Pennsylvania, if you don't know it... You would know it because it's the town that basically invented the outlet store. So it was a manufacturing hub that made clothing, and and they basically created these stores in the warehouse where there were seconds of T-shirts and shorts and, you know, I remember nightgowns where, as a child, we would go and buy our clothes, and they were, you would literally find things that had, like, burn holes in it. So for all of you who love your J. Crew outlet or your factory stores and the Gap outlet or whatever store you love, you can thank Reading, Pennsylvania for inventing that concept. 
you went through bins. It was like the floors were shaky. You could see people making the clothes in the background. Like that's where it all started. It wasn't like fancy schmancy like today where you go to the Prada outlet and it looks just like the Prada store, but like mm. secretly everything's kind of on sale. <laughs> so Reading is also famous for two other things. One is Taylor Swift. And uh, the other thing is they brought us the Goslin family. So John and Kate plus eight. This is um, what Reading, Pennsylvania is famous for. Burned clothing, the Goslins and Taylor Swift. So what was your family like? You know, it was unusual. It was a very, I went to a school that was an all white community. Basically, you know, ethnic diversity was not, not there. But what's really unusual about our school is that, and I didn't realize this was strange, is that all the kids who started in kindergarten, I would say 95% of us all graduated together in our senior year. So it was one of those schools where everyone knew each other K to 12. And only I learned after I graduated, like, that's not normal for a school to have Mm. kids all be together for so long. So for me, what was interesting is that it's like I grew up in a very white school, but there was like three of us that were like the diversity. There was one African-American. There was one, four of us, actually, one African-American. There was the one Jewish girl who every year had to explain what Hanukkah was. <laughs> How exhausting. She got time off for Hanukkah, but then she would, and they, people would be like, well, it's not fair that you're getting time off for Christmas. And she's like, what are you supposed to do? Come to school alone? <laughs> <laughs> and then there was me, um, the Korean, and then we had the one Vietnamese, not foreign exchange student, but he was an immigrant, so English was not you know, his strongest language. But what sucked for all of us is that for some reason, the school, like in our early days, like in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, they would have this day where you had to bring in food for your class that best represented your culture. And so the pressure was on. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's when you get to introduce everybody to the deliciousness of of kimchi and, Mm -hmm. you know, like noodle dishes or dumplings or whatever. So like the Vietnamese kid brought in amazing things. I had to bring in something and, you know, and then there would be like Beth or, you know, Taylor or, you know, Kristen, who had no idea what their culture was. <laughs> They'd come in and it, it would, I swear half the kids would bring in like star fruit because they're like, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> but what did you bring in? It was like a rice noodle dish with veggies. But like, you know, totally unfair. It's like, whose crazy idea was that to do that in my school? <laughs> So that was sort of the unusual part. But like what was really strange for me is that my, my brother and sister went to the same school. And my brother and sister were both valedictorian of our school. And I was the youngest of three kids. And when I graduated, I graduated last in my class. What were you spending your time on? You were not applying yourself in school, young man. What were you doing? I was never there. You know, I was running an international nonprofit organization. I made a very deliberate choice, probably about when I was 14, that I was either going to do really well in school or I was going to take advantage of all these amazing people that have come into my life from all over the world. And I was learning before the internet really existed. Like I was learning how to incorporate my organization. I was learning marketing skills, public relations skills, but at the same time, like I was learning life lessons from people like Dr. Jane Goodall and Bishop Tutu and Mikhail Gorbachev. And, you know, that's something where I feel like I had the world's best educators. Mm-hmm. And I was not that kind of kid where I could over excel, you know, and be like valedictorian, run a nonprofit, you know, be concert chair of the orchestra. I could really only do one thing right and, and utterly fail at everything else. Okay, so you're going to have to back up a little bit. First of all, tell us what your parents were doing while you were growing up. And then also we're going to need to know like how Desmond Tutu and, 
you know, Jane Goodall oh, yeah, came into your life. Oh, yeah, we gotta get so. into that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I grew up in a very traditional home. My father was a doctor. My mother, artist, housewife, um, you know, raised kids. But, you know, the, I think what was unusual is I thought they had a, they put a lot of pressure on us to do well. But in reality, when I look back now as an adult, um, I think at, at a certain point, my parents just believed, like, I was going to be fine. So when I when I stopped handing in my report card or sharing of them, they didn't ask me where my report card was. They knew it was horrific. Okay. So, but at the same time, it's like I I think even when I graduated from high school, I had a book deal in place. Like I I was I knew that I wasn't going to be living at home, and so I got myself a book deal so I had a, a small source of income so that I could leave home and work for a nonprofit organization and sort of figure things out. So I think because they just saw that. I was I was doing things on my own initiative still. It wasn't like I was like like an after school special, you know. It wasn't like someone needed to do an intervention on me. It's like I was very active in a lot of political and social causes and you know, I was working with attorneys on trying to stop development. I was doing all these crazy things, but as long as I didn't get myself arrested, that's all they cared about. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting to look back at it now because the internet was not it barely existed. I had a P.O. box for the organization and we corresponded through mail and, you know, everything was done on like zip files, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like floppy disks or zip disks. Yeah, zip disks. Like everything was done on that. You know, everything was done the old fashioned way. And I think what I liked about that is that I had to learn everything the hard way. And so when I wanted to incorporate the organization, you know, with the IRS, because we were raising enough money, the IRS was saying you need to be a nonprofit organization. Like, you know, my parents, the one thing they did is they supported what I did, but they never did anything for me. And so if I wanted to do that, I had to do it completely on my own, fail or succeed. And I think that was probably the most important thing that they did for me, because I knew that every success was something that I did on my own. But I also knew that every failure was a reason for that. I could only blame myself and learn mm -hmm. from that. So I think it made me stronger and smarter at the same time, but it made me a lot more resourceful that I think I use a lot of those things today to figure out solutions to a lot of problems in business. So you were about 11 or 12 years old and you decided to form a charitable organization called Earth 2000. You just had a couple of friends that wanted to get involved and you had just like a couple dollars, like 20 bucks or something. I just want to know where that even came from, like where that idea came from and why you were so concerned with the earth and, and how all of this came about. Well, my birthday is Earth Day. I think it's an unusual holiday. Like now it's, it seems more commercial when you look at Earth Day on television and, you know, when Rachel Ray is throwing like an Earth Day party on her show. It, it's sort of I kind of laugh because I think about when I was 12 and Earth Day, it was like Greenpeace and Earth First, and people chaining themselves to redwood forest trees. There was nothing commercial about it. It was it was such a, a radical holiday. And I think when you're 12 years old, and it was 1989, you're very naive and super idealistic. So I was naive just to believe everything I read, but I was idealistic enough um, to actually think maybe I could just change it. So... I just remember on my 12th birthday when I was reading the newspaper and God, when I say these things now, I feel so old. Like I was 12 without the internet reading a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I decided on my 12th birthday being idealistic and naive that I would start a nonprofit. And, and basically it wasn't like I wanted to start a movement. It was like, okay, I've got a couple of friends and, 
you know, what can we do? Let's plant some trees and, you know, maybe we can get some petitions signed and, you know, we can distribute some flyers. And what I didn't realize, and this is what Deepak Chopra explained to me, like many, many years later, what he said to me is that, you know, sometime somewhere during my 12th birthday, I had figured out my dharma in life. And he says, there's people who go through their entire lives to try to figure out their purpose, their meaning, the reason that they're here. And it's a journey that people go on to figure out like, what should I be doing? Who am I? And you know, what is the purpose to life? And, and for me, I, I think I accidentally figured it out on my own is that this is what I'm passionate about. This is what I care about. And it was never about having a business plan. It was never about having a bigger picture. It was more about, I just have to do it. I don't know how, I don't know why, I don't know where, and I don't know when, but I just have to do it. And when I look back at now in retrospect at being that young and doing these things, it's crazy the amount of energy and determination I had to do these things where nothing could make me say no, nothing could make me stop. And what types of things were you doing? That's the thing. I mean, we started off so small and then it was like this organic movement without the internet, without social media, where other kids around the country would read our stories like in magazines or in newspapers or in um, newsletters, zines, you know, were popular time. Mm-hmm. And they would write me postcards and letters to our P.O. box and we would just slowly get more members, you know, free to join. And I ended up getting tens of thousands of kids joining. To do what? Joining a movement. And so when I started realizing we had, you know, all these kids wanting to be part of something more than just like, you know, a tree planting ceremony, Uh we would do things like, you know, try to stop whaling, you know, in the Faroe Islands. And so we would campaign against that. We would, we would try to, we would get lawyers on retainer and, and try to stop development of, you know, historically important forested land and, and challenge them. So it became something where, it became a serious organization. I mean, we mm-hmm. convinced major retailers, you know, like the limited at the time to stop using fur um, in their designs. And it, it was where we convinced, it was like, at first when we were working on that campaign, I remember it was like thousands of kids writing letters. They couldn't care less because they're like their mom shopped there. And they were like, oh, okay. So we had hundreds of moms tear up their limited credit cards and send it to the company CEO. And that's when like, okay, we'll stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I think I, in a weird way, I'm kind of glad that technology wasn't so advanced at the time because it, it really allowed something just so beautifully organic to happen versus something that felt forced. So how were you getting finances for the attorneys and stuff? Were you getting donations from people at that point? Oh, I mean, we had fundraisers. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. but also keep in mind, like, you know, for a 14 year old to have an annual budget of $15,000, I mean, that was an enormous amount of money. Right. And, you know, today that's like nothing for a nonprofit organization, but to get 15000 20000 $25,000 a year. And that's when, once you, once we hit $25,000, we had to be a registered separate nonprofit organization because that was the maximum you could have without having to register. Okay. But I would get attorneys because, you know, we'd find them, these environmental lawyers to do things on a pro bono basis. And I remember the funny thing is we get these great attorneys, you know, helping us out and they say, well, you'd have to reimburse us for faxes. Here I go again with my aging. But with faxes and- I think lawyers still use fax machines. Honestly, they're like the them and doctors are like the only ones who still use. Them. No, and contractors. Oh, <laughs> I think contractors, they still love to fax for some reason. 
I don't know. Maybe I'm being very, I'm romanticizing it a bit, but like, you know, when you're like 14 years old and your mom drives you to the post office, like that was the extent of like their participation. And like you opened your PO box and there'd be like 500 letters, you know, and, and like, and these kids would be like from all over the world and they'd be writing things like I, I, thought I was the only one, you know, who cared about our planet. I was the only one who was a vegetarian. I was the only one who did this. It's nice to connect with someone. That must have felt so great that you found all of these people who were passionate about what you were as well. And there was no like real marketing initiative. It was like there was a story to tell and it was something that I'd started in my basement at a birthday party. And um, I just wanted to see where it would go. So you're doing all of this while you're in school, right? Well, I mean, yeah, technically. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so barely, you're like 12, and, 13, and by the 14, way, the reason it became more of a, a national movement was because originally it was just a school organization because like anyone could start a school group, you know, like, um, I don't know, like Latin Club or whatever. Right. And when we started this organization, because we were getting more involved in like political campaigns and we were backing certain people for office. My, I remember my high school principal pulled me aside and was like, you can't do this. Like, we need to approve what types of campaigns you work on. And I was like, forget that. And he goes, well, then you can't be in an organization anymore. And so, so I was forced to actually take it outside of the, the school and, in, a, in a weird way. It actually was the best thing that happened to me. And um, so you're, you're doing this organization. You take it out of the school. You're still working on it. And at what point did the press start to recognize what you were doing and you started to be more in the public eye? Well, I think it, it started, you know, probably like in a local paper, you know, and so all the stuff that happens as a teenager, it was like little pieces here and there. And I think, you know, and national media would love to have like, you know, they love having a teenager come on their show and talk about like how they're trying to change the world and save the world. And so that gives you a bigger platform. Mm-hmm. But like, I never tried to use it to sell anything. It was really, I just wanted to see who else would be interested. I remember there was a very distinct moment where everything morphed because, you know, when I was 18, I stopped running the organization. I was no longer in school. And so when you're 18 and everybody goes off to college or whatever they're doing now, um, it kind of just had its moment. So it was six years. It was a movement. We learned a lot. It was a great thing. Like, we're all happy we did it. But when I was 18, I started working for a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. as like a, a lobbyist for a forest preservation organization. Um, I also got a book deal from Random House and they paid me $30,000 my advance. So when you're 18, that's, that's like 10 years worth of rent. In your <laughs> Especially in the, in the nineties. Like I went and got myself an apartment in Washington, DC for $600 a month. And it was above a fire station and you know, the, the sirens go off every two hours, but like it was my own place. And I was like, I'm going to decorate the way I want to decorate it. And so I would find things off the street and I would, you know, repaint things, refinish things. And what I didn't realize is that I was accidentally tapping into like the way I like to live. So I was upcycling and recycling and, and being green in my everyday life. And when, I, when it came time to promote the book, when I was 19, because so, it takes a year for the book to be published, the reporter came to my house, and um, she was supposed to do this little tiny piece about activism and teenagers, and I made her lunch, and she ended up doing a cover story for the Washington Post that was like a lifestyle story, and she basically said, is this the next Martha Stewart? And I was horrified, horrified <laughs> the story came out, because I was like, I didn't go to culinary school. I didn't go to college. I didn't go to design school. I am a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. And she just basically decided to like hijack my story 
and turn it into something else. And I was upset because I thought Random House would be furious with me that I wasn't promoting the book. And the story gets picked up by the LA Times and it gets picked up all these different newspapers and get one major celebrity client when I was 19 years old, their assistant reaches out to me and they say he would love it if you could help him transform his life to be greener. And it is to this day, and it was the biggest movie star in the world. And, and to me, the, the, the horrific thing was like, again, I was so horrified because I was like, I am not at all credible to do any of this. I, sh- I should not be styling people like this is, I'm just doing what I like to live just because I like to have nice things and have a nice home, but I don't want to buy new things. Mm -hmm. And basically what happened is, is that the more that I fought it, the more that I realized it's like, there were a lot of people out there who could also buy into this type of lifestyle because it's what they were interested in. But at the same time, it was a different form of activism. So if you're somebody who couldn't subscribe to my idea of like, you know, creating a petition drive or lobbying Congress or something like that. But maybe you could, you know, be an activist in your own home for your family and the way that you cooked and decorated and cleaned and shopped for your family. Then I thought, wow, I have such a platform. Cause I remember the one thing I did with him, I said, you should take a, a hybrid to the Oscars. And it got so much press attention that someone decided not to take a limo to the Oscars that I was like one little suggestion like that got the world to recognize something sustainable. So why not embrace that? To me, it was so silly, you know, celebrities and they still are, but if it gets people to talk and it's positive, what's the harm? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. 
To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So you're self-taught in pretty much everything, like lack of formal education in place of a lot of learning on the on the fly. Correct? Yeah, everything. 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 Let's just look at the flip side of that for a second. Do you have any regrets sometimes? Are, are there things you think would have been better taught in school that you missed out on or not at all? I don't really look to the past or regret anything, but at the same time, I mean, I'm sure a college education would have been very helpful. I mean, honestly, if I took some legal courses, they'd be a lot more helpful in reading contracts because I swear contracts are written in another language when you look at that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I mean, in a strange way, you know, being, I'll go back to that being naive thing, being naive in my world right now in media and publishing and television, it's sometimes it's jarring and it sometimes lets you get away with a lot more in terms of your ask. 
Because I don't know what the rules are when it comes to, let's say, selling advertising or securing a sponsor for a show or doing a segment on a show or asking to do a segment on the Today Show that I want to do. And, and I think because of the way I communicate is so direct, people find it, instead of finding it rude, they find it kind of refreshing that I'm just getting right to the point. I mean, it is refreshing. You know, being naive or being um, not formally educated can be so refreshing and that can separate you from the crowd. I mean, I literally will say things on a call with high powered executives and <laughs> it's about something important. And I'll just say, it's like, I have absolutely no idea what anyone just said. <laughs> like, I was like, you guys need to dumb this down to like a fifth grade level for me because I have absolutely no idea what we all just agreed to do. If something doesn't go my way or something I was hoping would happen doesn't happen, it doesn't seem as brutally horrible that <laughs> I really un fully understood it. <laughs> So you're in D.C., you're a lobbyist for a forest company, you said, and you've got a book deal. What was the book about? It was like a hybrid kind of a book, horribly written. Um, if I could buy back every copy, I would. But it was semi-autobiographical, but also tips for teenagers on how to be an activist, too. So it was targeted for the teen market. And, and the funny thing is, I'm actually, I've been asked to write a book today, um, targeted to teenagers um, by this company up in Boston, where, where I made a comment to someone. I was like, I want to do a book that's targeted for everyone who is not valedictorian, like for the bottom half of the class, for the people who aren't the smartest, who aren't considered the brightest, who aren't considered you know, the ones with the best hopes for the future. But they have an idea of what they want to be and what they want to do. And I think there needs to be a book for them that like sometimes last place is the best place to be in. Hmm. So what's that book? Well, I mean, like I was last in my class and I think what it did is that it took the pressure off of me. I think the expectations on like my sister and brother who are valedictorian, the expectations were so high on them to, you know, also continue this path to success. And I would just see them sort of crash and burn because it's too much pressure. And then with me, like the expectation was like, please just don't be homeless. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's because of that I was, I was able to take risks. You know, that I think, you know, if, if I was someone who was super well-educated in business management or whatever it was, you know, you would weigh the pros and cons of taking a risk. And for me, it was always like, it's like, why not? Like, I've gone through my whole life thinking, why not give it a try? Because it's not brain surgery. You're not going to kill anyone. So I think that's why I look at everything. It's like launching a magazine, you know, trying to do a cookbook, doing a product line. It's like, why not? It's like selling makeup on Home Shopping Network. Why not? I know nothing about makeup, but why not? Let's see what happens. <laughs> okay. So you, since that book came out, you've written six books, right? And you are currently considering writing more books, it sounds like. As you mentioned, you have a magazine that's fairly new and you have a brand new TV show and you also do all kinds of other stuff. And I want to know how you do it all. What's your secret? Do you sleep two hours a night? Do you just hire a lot of really amazing people to help you with everything. Is there a secret? No, I sleep eight hours every night. We have like a, a little brand guy that shows like all of our different businesses and it's merchandising and licensing. There's, you know, endorsements and partnerships. There's publishing and books in the magazine. There's a television show. There's digital. There's also a syndication. And this is the secret to everything is that, and if you ask the stylists and the writers and the photographers that I work with, is that I'm very decisive. If you can't make a decision 
about yourself or what's happening in the moment, then you're wasting time. And this is that Deepak Chopra moment. If you know exactly what you want, what you should be doing and where you should be going, then you don't even have to give it a second thought. So for example, when we're planning out the magazine, you know, the staff, it's literally an art director, myself, and like four freelancers who do the shooting, the styling, and the writing. Mm-hmm. And, and I start with an empty grid with every issue, and I spend probably about four hours on the grid, and I, I make the decisions of what all the features are, what all the front of book stories are, and then I sign everything out. And I think where I've had my own experience in publishing when I worked at other publications with giant staffs is that when the head of the magazine keeps changing their mind mm-hmm. because they don't trust themselves or they, they feel like they've made the wrong decision, it trickles down and affects everybody. And then the quality of the work also gets impacted because then people aren't inspired. People are questioning themselves. They're also assuming it's like this shoot will probably not happen. And so when you build a reputation where you empower people and trust people to create a level of work but you also inspire them because they want to do that, then it eventually kind of has its own momentum and creates itself. Mm -hmm. And that's when I can move on to the next thing. I think that's how I'm able to do a lot. Decisiveness. Decisiveness. And I do surround myself with really strong people. And I know with the TV show, we had a crew of 26 people working on the show. And in week one, you know, I had to make tough decisions on who had to go. Mm Mm-hmm. But I also knew that it would be a mistake to myself and to the people who work on the show that I do like to keep people who aren't pulling their weight. But really, I think I did them a favor because if it's a show you don't believe in, if it's people you don't like, if they're guests that you belittle, you know, behind their back, then that's the kind of energy and spirit I don't need around me. Right. You can't take this many risks and be this this sort of naive, as as you called yourself, and self-taught without you know, some big failures, which, as we all know, are actually great because you learn so much from them. Um, failures are not bad, but no, not at all. let's let's talk about some of yours. Tell us the story of maybe your biggest career failure and how you turned it into something to build from. That's a hard one, isn't it? Your biggest career failure. Yeah, you just got to get real vulnerable with us, Danny. You just got to splay yourself open. I mean, I will say this about failing is that if you're not honest with yourself, you know, if you try to spin it to be favorable for yourself, you're not doing yourself a favor. I remember I was hired by HGTV to host a show and that was a big coup, my career. And I was co-hosting it with like this carpenter who, who's super good looking and this really good looking decorator. And, and so I was filming, I was doing all the field segments and they were filming stuff like from a specific location. And I remember I flew out to California. We were filming for a couple of days. And on the third day, you know, the producer walks up to me and goes, I don't know how to tell you this, but, you know, you're being let go from the show because it didn't work out. And, and like, I had a feeling because I was like, my delivery feels weird. I have no one, like, you know, to, like, play off of. Like, I don't know what we're doing. And I knew once the network saw, like, some of the footage, it'd be better if they just had, like, the hunky carpenter and like the super attractive, you know, female decorator. And then there was like me, <laughs> like in the field, like, Hey guys, one day I'll meet you. And so like, you know, so when I was fired, I just remember like, I think it'd be devastating for a lot of people. But like, for me, it was just like, I was like, okay, I'm fired, but at least I had the opportunity to be on a show and they're going to pay me in full for the year. So why not? But at the same time, 
when I looked at the contract, I was just like, I was like, oh, but I'm being completely released from all these crazy terms and conditions. And that's when I realized it was like, had the show been a success, I would have been stuck with having Big Brother watching over me. And, right. and the one thing that drives me nuts is that it, it's never about money, but like the one thing I can't deal with is having someone tell me what I can and can't do mm-hmm. in my life. Imagine this, for example, especially with social media today. Imagine, you know, I, like I'm a big Hillary Clinton supporter. And so let's say I retweeted something from her on Twitter and I get this email from the network that says, hey, do you mind taking that down? Because we would prefer, you know, if you wouldn't, you know, be so public about your political views. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to cultivate your image that you put out to the world, but in they're remaking you in their likeness. <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, and I'm fine with things like, if it's against the law, don't do it. I'm fine with that. You know, I get it. You know, you don't want to break the law. You know, there's morality, you know, and like, even if it's something like, you know, please don't be photographed, you know, smoking a cigarette, doing drugs, you know, drinking alcohol. I'm like, that's fine. But, you know, when it comes to things that are like this weird area of like, you know, this is freedom of speech. I have a problem with that. And so I would have a problem with a network like scripts telling me who, you know, what I can and can't endorse what events I can and can't go to, who I can and can't follow on social media. You know, it's like, it would drive me bonkers. And so that was a moment I realized if I ever get to a point in my life, I want to be sure that I'm in complete control of my destiny, of everything that I want to do, I can do. And I have the freedom and the ability to really create a world that synergistically works with each other, but I don't have to answer to anyone. Mm Mm-hmm. I have walked away from some crazy, crazy offers just because I couldn't deal with being micromanaged. And, and that was something where I think a lot of these networks and these brands are kind of shocked when these things happen. When I say, I just, I can't do this. It's because I think they're so used to so many people who do anything to be on television, do anything to get a commercial, do anything. Right. But I also think maybe you and I are on the same page with this, but I think they're doing a disservice to themselves. I think when they when you find a talent who is so decisive, who is so clear about who they are and you let them be such a clear voice, then ultimately that ends up being more profitable and and easier to build a bigger brand around than some sort of clay puppet that's being molded. I always feel like some of those networks are kind of like Subway sandwiches. (laughs) You know how Subway keeps all the ingredients in the same refrigerator? So even though they make all these different sandwiches, they all taste the same? (laughs) Yeah, I think letting people be themselves adds so much diversity. (laughs) I actually like that analogy analogy a lot. But you know what it is? I think we also forget is that these brands or the networks or the publishers or whoever they are, they're, they're hiding behind something bigger. But the reality is it's just they're still people. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a level and they don't trust. No one trusts each other. But also I, I'm trying to figure out what their intent is coming from. And usually it's, it's a place of fear is that if, you, if I screw up, that means they look like they screwed up, which means mm-hmm. they lose their job. And so, right. again, it becomes this thing from the top where you create an environment of fear versus an environment of inspiration, engagement and magic. It always reminds me of Clive Davis. Like we need more visionaries, and you know, who are really spotting talent and supporting them and helping them 
you know, become the fullest expression of themselves as opposed to these risk averse executives who are all like afraid of losing their jobs. And so they're dampening people's personalities in order to protect their livelihoods. It's it's frustrating to me, too, because you think of these networks, they're they're the ones who are uh, influencing or inspiring people to to do things like you know, if you see a makeover on TV, you're like, oh, that's really nice. I could incorporate some of that into my own home. But if it's all very similar and there's never any risk taking, you're basically telling the general public that this is how they should do things and it should all be like this, you know, and not giving them options to be creative. Yeah. And I think that's a disservice to everybody. I mean, I understand where everyone's coming from. I always look at intent. I try to, not the message, but what's the intent of the message from whatever it's coming from. And usually that's where you get the truth. And, you know, I knew for me to go back onto television, my intent was, it's never been about like, about celebrity or fame at all. Never. It's always been about, I have a message to say, it goes back to my roots as an activist. I want to inspire, you know, women and families on Saturday morning um, to make certain decisions. And I want the freedom to talk about everything from food to personal care to your home to even craft projects that could have some meaning. And and so when I had this idea to do the show, it took three years in development. And I knew one day all the stars would align. So when NBC was creating this new block, it was like the perfect opportunity to do it. All I have to do now is get golf canceled and everything <laughs> will be perfect. <laughs> The thing that people don't know about me is that 20 years ago, I was probably the most famous person in one country. That wasn't the United States, but I was the most famous person in Korea. And I would go to Korea and I was doing advertising campaigns. I was in fashion campaigns. I, was, I would do a book signing and have like, you know, 2000 people standing in a blizzard waiting to get a book signed. And when you're 19, you make stupid, stupid decisions. And I believed everything that I was the most famous person. I was inaugurating the president of the country for Christ's sake. So I became kind of a dick. And when you're that young, you don't realize the impact you're having on yourself. At the same time, you don't realize you're being influenced to be such a, a, mm. a horrible reflection of a human being because of what's happening around you. How many years did you spend being a dick before you realized it? <laughs> Well, you know, what's nice about the Korea experience was that I was able to experience what it was like to be super, super famous and see the fun side of that for about a day. But then you see the negative side of it pretty quickly when your own family is trying to cash in on you. And I don't mean like my parents. I mean, like my distant family, like, you know, saying I could show up at a car dealership for free or, um, you know, people would just try to like, you know, get me to hold products or endorse things for free or like you had no privacy whatsoever. Like I literally you know, would, would walk into a store and would be mobbed. And, and I, I think the only way to retaliate, to get some sense of privacy back was to act out, was to scream, was to be mean, was to like fight back. And the thing that was my saving grace was that I didn't live there. So I would go for like two weeks. I'd come home. Nobody here would know anything about me. Do you think having that contrast is kind of what helped you realize like when you were drinking your own Kool-Aid and when you weren't? It helps me now to realize that the, the, end, the end goal because, you know, is, not, is never to be famous. But it's like at the same time, it's like it's one thing to say, but it's like I really believe it. And, and that's why I hesitated about doing the show for one reason was it's like because I had to host the show. 
And, and that's where the, the thing that makes it difficult for me is, is that if, and this is what I realized that happened on home shopping network, which sounds so crazy now to even put those words together in the same <laughs> sentence. But you know, when you watch home shopping network and it's in 80 million homes or something is that when you go on as a salesperson and I was selling these natural products, you usually see like a beautiful woman in a dress, you know, who's just picture perfect, perfect makeup, perfect hair, you know, what you don't normally see is like some Asian guy. <laughs> you don't see men selling cosmetics, first of all. And then you also don't see someone Asian on television. You don't see someone who knows nothing about the industry. And it was so jarring that like within like one appearance, I was instantly like branded. Like people remembered me, mm. you know? Because you're an anomaly. Yeah, I mean, think about like, you know, if even if like the most beautiful woman went on the air with a beautiful dress, perfect hair, perfect makeup, and if she was the one like on her debut appearance got a nosebleed, she'd be, you'd know, you'd remember her right away. <laughs> like, like yeah. you're the one who had the nosebleed. So I was like a nosebleed on HSN. <laughs> and when you really look up the lineup on, you know, of all the network shows right now, there's really not a lot of Asian people on TV. So that's my only concern is that, you know, if you watch the show once or twice, you'll kind of instantly remember me from somewhere. And that's what worries me about privacy, because like there's going to be a moment where I'm at the supermarket eating Doritos and you're just going to be like, I can't believe he's eating Doritos. So, <laughs> I thought he, he made a kale salad today on the show. And now he's eating Doritos. I think that's my new fear is that I can't have a Dorito. <laughs> Oh my gosh, next time we're together, I'm taking pictures of everything you're eating and I'm going to sell them to the tabloids. <laughs> well, we're at the kitchen and bath show. Jamie, we're at the kitchen and bath show. Well, the food sucks. The food sucks there anyway, so we have to eat Doritos anyway. I mean, I can't just live off air. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not... <laughs> So you're not motivated by celebrity, obviously, or, or popularity. And, and you talked a little bit about inspiring people. Is that your core motivation for doing what you're doing and launching all these new things? I like to give out information. And, you know, and I think because of the, the way the world's constantly changing, you know, the information that we're giving, as much as I would love it to be timeless, there is no such thing as timelessness. So things have to be updated. Things have to be modernized. And we kind of have to challenge the way that we define words like natural and organic and um, sustainability. So my 10th book is a cookbook. And what's interesting is that I had no idea in the cookbook world that there was a whole business of secret recipe developers and writers and stylists and photographers who, when a celebrity signs a cookbook deal, they go to that celebrity and they package the whole thing. And the celebrity gets all the credit. Like it's like a ghostwriter for a cookbook. Mm -hmm that felt like lying. And so what I, the very first sentence in my book that I wrote is I hate to cook. <laughs> I hate cooking. I hate it. But I like to eat good food. Amen. You know, it's the, same, the same way I hate to clean my house, but I like to live in a clean house. So the brutal honesty in the cookbook is basically is that I admit that I worked with these teams of people that have helped me with the magazine. And these are some of the best recipe developers. These are some of the best, um, people who have worked with all these celebrities and chefs and restaurants, but you know, I gave them these challenges. And so they ran with the challenges. And if I can cook from these recipes and it comes off foolproof and delicious, it's going to work for you. That's why I, I'm very honest. Who works on the magazine, who works on the books, even when it comes to our products, I'm very honest that I don't design the products because what's the golden rule. Honesty is always the best policy. 
So in all of this and all of your adventures and your, your growth, is there a mentor or is there anyone in particular you want to call out right now has really helped you? Yeah, of course. As a child, there were two women that I was and continue to be um, obsessed with. Dr. Jane Goodall. Uh, I remember she came to our, our local museum in Reading, Pennsylvania to give a talk and tickets were $50 mm. or for, for $25 you could um, come to the reception after for a meet and greet. And, you know, when you're a young kid, you don't have $50. So I saved up my $25. And I remember um, after she gave her talk, I saw everyone leave and, and she was walking out and I peeked my head into the auditorium and I could see that she left all her note cards on the podium. Whoa, that's a find. That's like a set list from your favorite band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I ran in and I grabbed the note cards. And what I noticed is that she was doodling chimpanzees on all the cards. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> that makes me love her even more. And, and so, so I, I kept the cards and I didn't have the courage to say hello to her at the reception. But I remember years and years later, I ran into her at an event where now I'm an adult. And I'm talking to her and she goes, um, and I'm talking to her and I, was, I have something to admit is that, you know, you came to Reading, Pennsylvania and told her the whole story, how I stole the cards. And she had no recollection of ever leaving the cards behind, but she was, she laughed so hard. And then she looked at me and then, um, and she, this is probably like bucket list moment. And she was like, do you want to have a beer with me? She's wow, like, cool. She's like, she's like, everyone here is just like, you know, talking about science and the environment and politics in the world. And it's like, you look like somebody who would have like, you just want to sit down and have a beer. That's like, yeah, I'll just have a beer. That's awesome. And then the other person that is total opposite of that, that I always thought was so inspiring was Martha Stewart. And not for what you think. What I found inspiring about her is that this was a woman who she didn't care what her detractors said about her ever. Like, you know. And during Martha Stewart's heyday, um, when she had a weekly show and the magazine was out there, and um, all these people were saying that she's taking, you know, the feminist movement back and she's glorifying the domestic arts and, you know, and also she has an unrealistic way of living that no one else can really replicate. She didn't care. She just kept charging ahead because it's something that she fully believed in. She believed in herself. This was her dharma. And she went with it and succeeded. And there's something very brutally honest and inspiring about that, too. She may not be the warmest person or the nicest person. She's probably not going to give you a hug. But the thing is, you know that going into it. I mean, she, she does what she does. She is who she is. And she likes what she likes. Mm -hmm. Right. She's not willing to sacrifice things or change for other people. And that's very admirable. I mean, it also can backfire. You know, I mean, when it turns into stubborn, that's one thing. You do have to remember to listen to people who are better at their jobs or at their skills or whatever their creative set is than you are. So this is like an interesting story where someone says, you know, it's like they look at the magazine budget and like, you know, where you could save a lot of money is if you cut back on photography costs and maybe use stock. Like, let's show you some stock. It's cheaper oh. or, you know, or you could shoot it yourself. Oh. And I find it to be so dismissive to a lot of our photographers who, you know, studied the skill for so mm -hmm. many years, they've gone to school for it. I'm not talking about the people who literally show me their iPhone portfolios. It drives me nuts. But people where they, they know exactly what they're doing. They know how to problem solve in situations where the lighting isn't, you know, perfectly daylit. But 
I just see it to be such a slap in the face when a publication just uses everything that's just as cheap as possible. You know, you got to celebrate the right people and do the right thing. But I also make it very clear to them, like, you know, I hear you. I hear the frustration and that'll never happen as long as it's under my watch. I don't know how we got to that conversation. No, I like this conversation. (laughs) You manage a a pretty big team. And I'm sure management, you know, is Okay, the small team. It's really. <laughs> what have you learned in, about managing? You know what it is? It's the quality of the work and not the quantity of time. And 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 and, and so for me, it's it's it's. I don't need to see. I don't need FaceTime in an office environment to show that you're dedicated to your job. What I care about is like if it takes you five minutes to get something done versus five hours. All I care about is the quality of what you accomplished. I also think. Honesty is a big thing for people too. And then I also found, I keep going back to the word intent, but you know, when your intent is to do your best and to deliver your best, that's what matters. But if your intent is to harm others or to be a distraction or to bring harm to me, that's a whole other thing. So mm-hmm. I remember we had this production assistant on the show. We were filming um, outside Portland, Oregon. And the keys to the car, to the, to the crew car van, they were locked inside the van and, and he was giving a million excuses. Like it wasn't me. I think it was the valet. And I was like, dude, like, it's fine. Like if you did it, it's like, it's fine. You're not going to get fired. You know, the goal right now is get the keys out of the car. But I realized his intent was not to leave the keys in the car. His intent was to like, you know, multitask and try to be more efficient and packing up the car and getting us along the way. And he made a mistake. So even though like, I think, in that kind of a situation, I was told by our field producer, she's like, with any other talent, they'd be flipping out on them and screaming at them because we're late and everything's behind now. That's but not like, true. You, That's painting a bad picture of talent. She's like a lot of hosts would just freak out because like now they're stuck waiting three hours out in the middle of a parking lot. Okay. Well, you I know? think there are a lot of just general assholes in the world and some of them are talent. <laughs> And, but she, I think they were just, but I was, I was trying to explain cause like the energy was like, you know, this kid's an idiot, you know, it's like, it's like we're behind now. And, and like I, as the leader of this organization, like I had to remember his intent was to do the best job possible today and, you know, mistakes happen. Yeah. I, I certainly believe like when there's an honest mistake, you know, punishing somebody for an honest mistake, isn't really going to do any good. Doesn't help anybody. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to articulate if you weren't there, but I could tell like his his intent was to do the best job possible today because he's learning every day. But when the guy came, you know, to unlock the car door and they, you know, they use that air bladder and like a wire to open it. Um, and we had a conversation that felt like what it would cost to do that. When he showed up, he goes, this is the price or I don't do it. That's when I was like, but your intent is to rip us off now. <laughs> yeah. Now it's a whole other game. And that's when I was like, I was like, team, team producers, team, like lighting guys, camera guys, you can take that rage now and focus to cut that price that we agreed to. (laughs) So you and I have spent a lot of time together and you have a very sarcastic sense of humor. And as you mentioned, you have no problem telling things like they are. Has this ever caused a problem or bitten you in the ass like maybe you said the wrong thing to the wrong person oh like every day (laughs) (laughs) totally totally every day um and i think in a blue moon there there are some people who actually i find out the hard way 
that, you know, after spending maybe a week with them working on something, they thought everything I said sarcastic was the truth. It's, it's a tough one because is it a fault, you know, or is it just my character? And, and it's, it's, it's something where I think I need to work on it or I just need to read people better. I think if people don't understand sarcasm, that's like nobody's fault because there are people that just don't understand. But, you know, you wouldn't know that right off the bat. But I would have filtered them out. Yeah. Like it's, there's, there's like an automatic like filtration system or like a <laughs> bubble around me where it's like people who don't have a sense of humor already know to stay away. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like when that rare person gets into the bubble and, and then I find out that their feelings were hurt because like I actually, you know, like may have said something, but it was surely not even like the case, you know? Yeah, you weren't being malicious. You were just trying to crack a joke or have some fun and people just don't get it. Yeah, you know, and, and it's like, and they take it very personally when the reality is it's like, they don't realize it's like they wouldn't have lasted the whole week if I didn't respect them and think they were doing an amazing job. Right. And, and I think that may be a generational thing where I think some people just need to have constant praise or every assurance. And that's something I'm not used to. Let's talk a little bit about your personal life. Who's the real Danny? Not, uh, not much to talk about. <laughs> well, okay. So you work your butt off. I mean, you've got all these things going on all the time. You're probably constantly working. I know you're constantly traveling, but what's your favorite thing to do to like escape all of that? What do you do to unwind? First of all, I really don't work that hard. I don't know why people don't believe me, but it's again, it's, it's, it's all about the quality work and not the quantity. Mm. But I also find that the work that I do is very fascinating. And it can be a lot of fun. I mean, we have a photo shoot coming up in Sri Lanka and, and it's fun. Like I get to see the world and I get to travel people that I like and I get to create beautiful photos and, and tell beautiful stories. And, you know, it's something super enjoyable at the same time too. And also keep in mind, I've created a life for myself where like, I don't have to report to anyone, mm-hmm. but I think being in control, that's, that's the key thing because the thing that kind of drives me nuts is like, I got like a little taste of this recently when I called into the wrong conference line <laughs> and I was, cause I, and I, and I hate conference calls because they feel like it's everyone talking on top of each other, but I dialed the wrong digits going to this conference line and these people were talking and, and I was late and I was like, okay, I'll just sit here quietly and listen. And then I realized like three minutes into it, I was like, I don't know who these people are. Like I think I called into like it was some like major corporation and there were people calling goes, Hey, it's Bob from the, you know, from the Detroit office. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what they were talking about. Like it was another language, but then I realized I was like, this is what these people do all day long. And, and I, and I think it's like this, this corporate culture that, that I think to me, that's death is, is when you're stuck in a, in a corporate culture that despises being an individual that really wants you to be a team player. And I think for me, another way that I, I sort of can sort of represent this is, uh, you know, I remember we were selling um, for the television show, you know, we have to have sponsors for the show to finance the show. So it could be on the air and, you know, and so I had to go to a bunch of these meetings and, and I, I left one of the meetings and there was somebody join us at the meeting. And, you know, I was like, I was like, I think that went really well. And, you know, I think there's a really good chance they'll be part of the show. And I like the brand and I think this is really nice. And I was like, you know, do you guys want to have lunch? It's like around lunch. There's a great place around the corner. And she's like, she's like, before we do that, I thought we would do. And this is something that I learned at the last company I worked at is if we could go around 
the circle right now, and we all talk about everything that went right and everything that went wrong and how we can learn from that and improve together. And I remember, <laughs> uh. I just, I remember I just stood there, like, you know, like, just glaring at her. And I just remember, like, my fr- and, like, there were other people, there was a lot of people in the circle, and I just looked at her, and I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, it's, again, that brutal honesty. Like, I don't know what's, I have no diplomacy skills. And I mean, all the people at the production company just like me a lot more because they were like, you know what? No one else would have been so honest and saved us 30 minutes. <laughs> so you seem like a fairly self-assured type of individual. But, you know, when we open up, we all have to admit that we have fears. What's your biggest fear? Does anyone ever ask you questions? All right. If you answer your biggest fear, we will answer one of your no, questions. I want to know what your biggest fears are. <laughs> Well, I have a big irrational fear of being homeless. I know it's irrational, but I, I just really operate a lot better when the shelter over my head is in a secure position. That's one of my, my a big irrational fear. And then let's say a legitimate fear. I, I worry about my health. Okay. Those are both legitimate though. Okay. Well, right now I've got a home and I'm pretty healthy, so I'm doing good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next. Oh, do I have to go? Okay. Um, I hate flying more than anything. I would rather not go on a trip if I could. And that sucks because my job requires me to travel. I think that's a rational fear. I don't know if I have any, to tell you the truth. I mean, there's something happening now. I don't know if it's fear or more concern, but. Tell us. I have a cabin in the woods and like. Usually around this time of year, there'll be like a little bit of a, like a cricket infestation as the weather gets cooler. They come in the house and it just lasts for like a day and it's something crazy. But like, I noticed like I haven't seen crickets and, and it gets colder at night. I'm like, huh, that's weird. And like, and like even like Sterminator was like, it's like, yeah, you don't seem to have any mice either. Like, it's like, there's, there's no signs of like field mice and usually there's something. Oh, no. And I'm like, oh, I mean, that's good. I mean, these are all good things. I'm like, so the house, but I didn't do anything different. And then I was cleaning under, um, you know, the vacuum and like the vacuum picked up like all this shed snakeskin (laughs) under the heater. And then I went and looked at the fireplace. I noticed this little trap door in the fireplace, you know, to scoop out the ash was just a wedge open that went to the outside. Mm. And, And so... I, right now, every time in my house at night, I hear like a slight movement or something. I think there's a snake living in the house. But at the same time, I've kind of grown to accept it because I'm thinking, well, he's leaving me alone. I'm leaving him alone. He's dealing with your rodent and your bug problem for you, naturally. And they can smell or sense there's a snake in the house. They're staying far away. And if if he leaves me alone, that's fine. But like, I have this fear that like, he's just going to like attack me. So... (laughs) It's pretty logical. I mean, if you see, like, if, if there's literally snakeskin shed on your carpet. Yeah, he's in there. He's in there waiting like, for you. Somewhere. That didn't, that didn't just, like, dropped off in the house, you know, by accident. It's like, Jesus Christ, this is going to be, like, a nonstop fear fest in this house. <laughs> I'm, like, Googling things like, you know, can snakes climb stairs? Like... <laughs> Note to self, decline any invitations to be a guest at Danny's house in your future. 
Okay, so you seem like a pretty laid back guy, even though you're incredibly driven. Do you ever hold grudges or do you pretty much just let things roll off your back? I don't hold grudges. I think that's too toxic. But, you know, if you hold a grudge against someone, it's usually you understand what the intent was and then you know to stay far away. So what does your off-duty home life look like? Do you have a partner? Do you have family? Do you have pets? You know, it's it's just me right now. Um, And... You know, it's, I, I kind of look at all the people that I engage with, you know, to be a family. I've got my immediate family, of course. But um, I think this is the tough one to figure out because I think I figured out, like, what my personal mission in life is and what my professional life is and what my contribution to the world is. But, you know, that would sound like someone who has, like, a pretty perfect understanding of who they are and what they are and what they want to do. But what I haven't really figured out is, like, what I want to do with my personal life. And it actually kind of reassures me that this is where I'm not really sure what to do because it gives me a sense of humility, but also um, vulnerability too. Mm -hmm. So when you say you're not really sure what you want to do, does that mean you're not sure if you want to settle down? You're not sure if you're into monogamy? You're not sure if you're into men or women? What does that mean? Oh, you know, as much as I would answer that question, I can't. (laughs) But um, we can move on. Without getting too personal, I, I respect your privacy. Is there anything you can elaborate for our listeners about what you mean by not not knowing what you want? Because I, I just don't quite understand what you're saying. Do you feel like having a partner, like a solid relationship would detract or distract you from your work or your life mission? No, no, no. Not knowing is not knowing. Not knowing is not knowing. Yeah. It's literally not knowing. It's like, you know, it's like... You don't have an answer because knowing what you don't know means you know something. And I literally don't know. So are you still close with your parents and your two siblings? Yeah, of course. You have lived like a lifetime in the small time that you've been on this planet. Um, And you've got all kinds of stuff happening between your magazine and you've got all your books and uh, now you've got a show. I was going to ask you what's next for you, but I assume that the most exciting thing that you have coming up is the launch of of the new show, right? Every Saturday morning on NBC. I'm excited for that. Um, Trying to think of like what else is going on. There's a lot of charity things I really like. Ooh, what do you have coming up? Anything that people could get involved in or should take note of? This is something I actually never talk about because all the nonprofit work and the charity work, I keep super private. So there's a lot of organizations that I fundraise for. I work behind the scenes. I anonymously support. It's not because I, I don't think they deserve attention. It's that I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that it could be perceived that I'm trying to exploit charitable work, you know, to promote my for-profit mm. business. And so I think the easiest thing is just to be completely quiet about it. This is, this isn't my money. So I can say this, um, for the show, you know, we had a sponsor for the show for our cooking segments and they gave us, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of gift cards used at their supermarkets uh, to buy ingredients. And when we were done, uh, our production manager was like, it's like, Oh, let's give out all the gift cards to the entire crew. And I was like looking at them. I was like, this is like thousands of dollars. I'm like, let's just give it to a food bank. And and so because I knew as a kid, I remember I used to volunteer at a food bank, they would say it's like for us, the best gift is cash because we can really go out and buy what we need versus mm-hmm. getting, you know, like, you know, baby corn. Right. <laughs> so like when we donated it, it's like, you know, they were like, should we film a little video? Do you think you should? I was like, no, you're going to send it anonymously in the mail to them. 
like that's like no strings attached. Don't even tell them what's from. It's like that's the way it should be done. Because I get asked all the time, you know, with like our products or anything we're working on. It's like let's donate some money to charity or an endorsement deal. Like let's give a portion of the money to charity. I'm like, we can, but we can't be part of the marketing plan. Mm-hmm. Like you can do it quietly, but don't put it on the product. Don't put out a press release. Let's not create an oversized check. <laughs> I don't want to do any of that. Well, good luck with your snake. Thank you. And good luck with your fear of flying and homelessness. <laughs> I think we're all going to be all right. Yeah, I think so. Thank you, guys. This was fun. I appreciate it. All right. See you later. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, guys. Bye. So that was kind of an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, he gets a lot done in a day and he's <laughs> he's lived a lot already. I feel like he was a bit guarded with us, though. Like, I wish we could have learned a little bit more, but I get it. Yeah, I agree. I would I would like to peel back more layers there. But I also feel like, you know, he had that experience of being super popular in another country um, which, you know, at a, at a time in his life when he was probably fairly impressionable and just like developing who he was as a person. So I, I can tell that, like, you know, as, as a very well-known media professional, he's probably got a, a guard up just, you know, d- by default. Yeah, he definitely had his guard up. I guess I don't blame him. I, I really like the idea of this podcast being the thing that can... Um, you know, kind of pierce that guard. Mm -hmm. But I guess we can't do it every time. Well, he did say that he was a dick and he realized it and he modified his personality after that. So I think that he did come out with some really great stuff. I mean, you know, the the idea of intention was (laughs) something that really resonated with me personally, because a lot of times I, I have a short fuse sometimes and I get quick to be annoyed by things that really aren't meant to annoy me (laughs) so I I should I'm gonna take that as like a a new thing I'm gonna focus on in my work and also with friends and family oh definitely it can improve relationships it and it can improve your own stress level if you're not overreacting to stuff because if you just sort of take a second to realize where they were coming from it almost always changes how you react to it or at least how pissed off you get (laughs) right totally (laughs) Well, what I really liked is, well, first of all, he knew what he was going to do from 12 years old. I mean, we can't all be blessed with that, but that's pretty cool. But then he had this like interesting, it's not really a pivot, but this recognition that he could maybe accomplish his goals even better by utilizing this platform of helping people design their lifestyles as opposed to you know, signing petitions and chaining themselves to trees and stuff. He he started to realize that he could he could maybe say a lot more by channeling his message through celebrities and through lifestyle stuff. Yeah, it's those little bits of things, those tiny changes that everybody can make that actually make a big difference. And I think when when you recognize that not everybody is going to go chain themselves to a tree or whatever, <laughs> you recognize that people might change to a different brand of something or make a donation to something or just make like small changes. But if you can reach a large number of people, then that change becomes big. I don't know what we call it, like microactivism or just being smart consumerism. But I think there are a lot of people out there that are really hungry for just ideas and information so that they can, you know, make more 
conscious choices when they're buying things or when they're cooking things, you know. Mm -hmm. So good on him. Cheers to you, Danny CEO, for helping people out with that. Cheers. Thanks for listening, guys. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Danny CEO at work at cleverpodcast.com. And you can also connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modell of Your Studio. And as always, with awesome music by L1011. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.